I was raised to believe that the Bible defines good and evil for us within its pages. But when we stop and examine this idea using the Bible, we discover something else. In the Garden of Eden, there were two trees. A tree that would bring life to all who ate of its fruit, and a tree that brought death. And it was the second tree, the tree that resulted in death, that contained the knowledge of good and evil. Have we been deceived by the serpent who is trying to get us to eat of the second tree? Is the Bible really trying to define good and evil for us? Let's take a step back. Let's run an experiment. Instead of seeking to define good and evil, let's instead ask the question of the trees. Let's attempt to define life and death, but to do so, we must first seek it out. So join us as we Deresh Chai, as we seek life. Hey everybody, welcome to the Deresh Chai Experiment, the show where we once again look at the repetitive things of Scripture in order to discern the purpose for this repetition. Now we've reached the end of the first part of the book of Leviticus. The instructions for sacrifice are finished and we're all still alive. Now prayerfully, you haven't died of boredom in the process of going through this part of Scripture. That tends to be rather boring when we just read it straight through without stopping to consider what's occurring in the text. My hope is that you've been granted new lenses through which to view the sacrificial system, and that it's no longer barbaric ancient practice, but rather that the sacrificial system reveals very real ways of communicating to and participating in relationship with Hashem. So as we go through the book of Leviticus, we're going to discover that the book has four primary topics that are covered throughout the course of this book. Four things that everyone in Israel was to be aware of in the course of their worship of Hashem. And as we will find, there is a lot that we can learn from these topics even today. And then nestled between each of these major movements or topics of the book, there are sections that serve as asides of sorts, as connective tissue. For anywhere from one to three chapters, the topic will shift a bit, and we'll find that all four of the main topics of Leviticus will come together for a time, and then be explored through the lens of the priesthood. This week we begin the first of these separators, or vignettes, that bring together these four main themes. So what are the four main themes that we should be looking for in the next three chapters? Well, the first is the theme that we've just finished, and that's the theme of sacrifice. And as we've seen, sacrifice is only the object and practice that is used to delve into the much deeper topic that's present in the text. A topic that I believe that ancient peoples who participated in sacrifice would have been familiar with and just naturally understood. But one that we as modern people 2,000 years removed from the sacrificial system simply shake our heads and wonder at. The second theme is one that we'll begin to see the focus of this book narrow down to in chapter 11, and that's the topic of uncleanness. And as we're going to find out, this topic is one that is useful for us today in many and perhaps surprising ways. This topic will continue through chapter 15, and then we will encounter the second vignette where all four main topics are once again brought together. And this is the shortest of these separator sections that we're going to encounter in this book. And in this chapter, we will read of the day of Yom Kippur. Then in chapter 17 through 20, we will read of the next main topic of Leviticus, and that's the topic of holiness. And once again, we're going to find that there are things that Leviticus has to say about holiness that we often miss in our world of systematic theology and denominationalism, things that are applicable and necessary to understand as we walk out holiness even today. Then from 21 to 22, we'll encounter the final connecting piece in Leviticus as all four topics are brought together again as holiness and the priesthood and community are explored for two chapters. 
And then chapter 23 begins the final of the main themes of the book of Leviticus, the theme of community, communal worship, communal responsibility, communal consequences. And we're going to discover just how vital the idea of community is for the people of God. So this week we begin the first of these three buffer portions, a part of text where we'll see all four of the main topics brought together. Again, the four main themes being sacrifice, uncleanness, holiness, and community. In this first of three chapters, we're going to see all four of these main themes of Leviticus at least touched on a little bit. And then in the next two chapters, we will see them developed a bit further as well. So let's turn to Leviticus chapter 8, and let's read of the ceremony of ordination that God prescribed for the raising up of new priests to serve before him. Leviticus chapter 8 And Hashem spoke to Moshe, saying, Take Aaron and his sons with him, and the garments, and the anointing oil, and the bowl of the sin offering, and the two rams, and the basket of unleavened bread, and assemble all the congregation at the door of the tent of appointment. And Moshe did as Hashem commanded him, and the congregation was assembled at the door of the tent of appointment. And Moshe said to the congregation, This is the word Hashem commanded to be done. So Moshe brought Aaron and his sons, and washed them with water and put the long shirt on him, and girdled him with the girdle, and dressed him in the robe, and put the shoulder garment on him, and girded him with the embroidered band of the shoulder garment, and with it tied the shoulder garment on him, and put the breastplate on him, and put the urim and the tumim in the breastplate, and put the turban on his head, and on the turban, on its front, he put the golden plate, the set-apart sign of dedication, as Hashem had commanded Moshe. And Moshe took the anointing oil, and anointed the dwelling place and all that was in it, and set them apart. And he sprinkled some of it on the altar seven times, and anointed the altar and all its utensils and the basin at its base to set them apart. And he poured some of the anointing oil on Aaron's head, and anointed him to set him apart. And Moshe brought the sons of Aaron, and put long shirts on them, and girded them with girdles, and put turbans on them, as Hashem had commanded Moshe. And he brought the bull for the sin offering, and Aaron and his sons laid their hands on the head of the bull for the sin offering. And it was slain, and Moshe took the blood, and put some of it on the horns of the altar all around with his finger, and cleansed the altar. And he poured the blood at the base of the altar, and set it apart to make atonement for it. And he took all of the fat that was on the entrails, and the appendage on the liver, and the two kidneys with their fat, and Moshe burned them on the altar. And the bull and its skin and its flesh and its dung he burned with fire outside the camp, as Hashem had commanded Moshe. And he brought the ram of the ascended offering, and Aaron and his sons laid their hands on the head of the ram. And it was slain, and Moshe sprinkled the blood on the altar all around. And he cut the ram into pieces, and Moshe burned the head and the pieces and the fat. And he washed the entrails and the leg in water, and Moshe burned the entire ram on the altar. And it was an ascending offering for a sweet fragrance, and an offering made by fire to Hashem, as Hashem had commanded Moshe. And he brought the second ram, the ram of ordination, and Aaron and his sons laid their hand on the head of the ram, and it was slain. And Moshe took some of the blood and put it on the tip of Aaron's right ear, and on the thumb of his right hand, and on the big toe of his right foot. And he brought near the sons of Aaron, and Moshe put some of the blood on the tips of their right ears, and on the thumbs of their right hands, and on the big toes of their right feet. And Moshe sprinkled the blood on the altar all around, and took the fat and the fat tail, and all the fat that was on the entrails, and the appendage on the liver, and the two kidneys, and their fat, and their right thigh. And from the basket of unleavened bread that was before Hashem, he took one unleavened cake and a cake of bread anointed with oil and one thin cake and put them on the fat on the right thigh and placed all these in the hands of Aaron and in the hands of his sons and waved them as a wave offering before Hashem. Moshe then took them from their hands and burned them on the altar on the ascending offering 
They were ordinations for a sweet fragrance. It was an offering by fire to Hashem. And Moshe took the breast and waved it, a wave offering before Hashem. It was Moshe's portion of the ram of ordination, as Hashem had commanded Moshe. And Moshe took some of the anointing oil and some of the blood which was on the altar and sprinkled it on Aaron and on his garments and on his sons and on the garments of his sons with him. And he set apart Aaron, his garments, and his sons and the garments of his sons with him. And Moshe said to Aaron and his sons, Cook the flesh at the door of the tent of appointment and eat it there with the bread that is in the basket of the ordination as I have commanded, saying, Aaron and his sons are to eat it. Then burn the rest of the flesh and the bread with fire. And do not go outside the door of the tent of appointment for seven days until the days of your ordination are completed, for he fills your hands for seven days. Hashem has commanded you to do as he has done this day to make atonement for you. And stay at the door of the tent of appointment day and night for seven days, and you shall guard the duty of Hashem and not die, for so I have been commanded. And Aaron and his sons did all the words that Hashem had commanded by the hand of Moshe. For the last seven chapters, we have read a lot of instructions on just how the sacrificial system was to be carried out. What were the rules and regulations regarding sacrifice as it was practiced? What is the meaning of the sacrifices? This week we begin to read the one and only narrative of the book of Leviticus, and in it we encounter the very first time that these instructions for sacrifice were carried out in the tabernacle. But this chapter contains not only the carrying out of the instructions for sacrifice that we just read, but as we read we will find that there are many previous instructions that are being carried out and reaching their fulfillment. The instructions for the priestly garments that we read back in Leviticus 28 and 39, they find their realization in this chapter. The instructions for the creation of the holy anointing oil that we read of in Exodus 30 it reaches its fulfillment as we read of its first use. The instructions for just how to go about the process of ordination that we read in the chapter of Exodus 29 is accomplished here. In fact, it is in this chapter that the entirety of the tabernacle finds its very first use. Every piece coming into functionality at the same time. And this is what we read in the first two verses. Moses gathers together the various items that will be needed for the ordination ceremony, and then in verse 3, he calls the entire congregation together to witness at least the beginning of this process. In verse 6, we see that the first thing that occurs in the process is the act of washing the men that were to be ordained to serve as priests. Now, as we spoke of earlier when we went through these instructions, the first time in the book of Exodus, we were all, well, all who believe anyway, we are all being built up into a priesthood to serve Hashem. And the first thing that we are told to do as believers is to be immersed in water. Here in the ordination is for a washing of the flesh. For the flesh contains in it the uncleanness that is an affront to Hashem. And with Hashem coming to dwell physically in their presence, then the uncleanness of the flesh needs to be dealt with. But in this day and age where the presence of Hashem is not dwelling physically on this earth, the submersion in water that we experience is not for the same purpose. 1 Peter 3.21 says, Which figure now also saves us. Uh, he's referring back to the flood of Noah. Baptism. Not a putting away of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward Elohim through the resurrection of Yeshua the Messiah. According to Peter, the washing that we participate in is now for a different purpose than it once was. While the temple still stood, the practice of mikvah or ritual washing was for the purpose of removing not just dirt, but the uncleanness from the flesh. So the symbol of washing that's carried over into this age, one without a temple, the symbol still exists. 
but it's no longer for the same purpose. Rather, now it is an identification with the death and the subsequent resurrection of our Messiah and the hope that we have in him. Just after the washing, we read of a high priest being dressed in the vestments of his office, the robes of honor and beauty that set this man at the head of the people before God in regards to worship practices. And as we spoke of again back in Exodus, clothing is a symbol that denotes a person who has been bestowed with a measure of honor. And as we'll see shortly in this chapter, the clothing that the priests wear, they denote not only honor, but a measure of holiness. If we think back, we'll remember that these garments were made with a linen and wool mixture, a mixture that is holy and is reserved for holy applications. These garments are about more than honor. They are about holiness. And beyond that, they are about righteousness, especially the white linen garments that are the clothing for the rest of the priests. And again, if we look to the New Testament, we find the same idea being represented in the idioms that are used to surround the Holy Spirit. Luke 24, 49 says, And see, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but you are to remain in the city of Jerusalem until you are clothed with power from on high. And on the day of Pentecost, in Peter's address to the people, he says this, Acts 2, verse 28, and Peter said to them, Repent, and let each one of you be baptized in the name of Yeshua the Messiah for the forgiveness of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. First comes the washing in water, and then comes the gift of, in this metaphor, clothing, as it's used in Luke, that is, the Holy Spirit. The ordination of a new priesthood being instituted in the world. Not one of blood that failed, but one of spirit that is formed under our Melchizedekian high priest Yeshua. This is what's being spoken of in Hebrews chapter 8, but this too is something that's already been covered in this podcast in episode 72. If you would like more information on that particular topic in Hebrews 8, go listen to that podcast. Well, once the high priest is dressed in his garments, then comes the task of anointing. And the anointing of ordination begins not with the people, but rather with the tabernacle, and then the altar of sacrifice, and then the labor. This anointing with the oil is something that we read of back in Exodus chapter 40, verse 10 through 15. All of the items in the tabernacle were to be anointed, everything, and they were anointed before the people were anointed. And in this chapter, we read of the command being fulfilled and the story of it occurring, whereas before it was simply stated, and Moshe did according to all that Hashem had commanded him after the series of commands. Here, we read of these actions being fulfilled. In verse 14, we read of the first sacrifice to be offered on this newly anointed altar. And this first sacrifice, it's not an ola, as is in the case of nearly everywhere else in Scripture when we read of the two occurring together. Why? Well, I think it's because while the altar has been anointed and it's been granted holiness, it is still an article that had been built by people in the midst of their uncleanness. And so the altar was still unclean. And because of this, the altar needed to be cleansed first before it could be used for any other purpose of worship. And in verse 15, we read this very thing happening. The blood of the sacrifice was applied to the altar, and the altar was cleansed or purified. Now, there's something very interesting that occurs in the Hebrew of this verse. And because of this oddity, this verse becomes a proof text of sorts to, for a claim that I made back when we covered the sin sacrifice. 
The word that's translated as cleansed in my translation and purified in the ESV in the King James Version, it's not the usual word used for cleansing or purifying something. The Hebrew word that's used in this place is none other than the verb form of the word chata'at, sin. Moses sinned the altar. With this word being used in this verb form, we could understand that Moses committed a sin towards the altar. What? Well, this makes no sense if we use our modern definition and understanding of sin. And it's this usage of this word here that can help us to begin to retrain ourselves in our understanding of how we can better define this concept of sin as we began to do previously. In modern Christianity, we're told that sin is moral failure. It's doing evil in some way, but all too often the concept of evil and morals then begin to take on the definitions of the society that is interpreting the Bible. But from this example here, we catch a glimpse that sin is connected to uncleanness in a very real way. The result of sin is uncleanness, and it must be purified by a sin offering. Only a small portion of sin offerings in Bible are offered for moral failures, and those are covered by the subset of sin offering known as the guilt offering, which we've already covered. The rest of the sin offerings are for the purpose of purification. And usually it's not the purification of the worshiper, rather it's the purification of the items in the tabernacle. And so if sin is connected to uncleanness, then there are things that a person can do that are not moral failures, but that can be considered sin. With this view, we can begin to make heads and tails of what David is talking about in Psalm 51 verse 5 where he says, See, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. David's mother was not engaged in adultery or fornication when she was conceived. She was engaged in an act that produces uncleanness, as we're going to see in Leviticus chapter 15. And David calls it sin. She didn't morally fail. As we're going to find out shortly, uncleanness in Scripture, as it's defined apart from moral failure, is always connected to death. Now, I know that the purpose of this show is to explore the idea of righteousness being connected to life. That is, after all, the stated purpose of the show and the main goal and focus of everything that we do here. And this verse here is one of many data points that has led me to this experiment in the first place. I contend that we don't truly understand sin as we should when we look at it through modern Western lenses. Sin is not moral failure, or the usage of this word in this way in this place is completely wrong. Moses did not morally fail the altar. Rather, he purified the altar through the act of sinning it. Now, just as with the word dust, the verb form of dust can mean to apply dust to something or to cleanse dust from something. So too we see with chata'at in Hebrew. The verb form of sin can mean to apply uncleanness or to remove uncleanness from a person or item. Shifting our understanding just this little bit, it can help us to gain a fuller and I believe a better grasp of what the rest of the Bible is talking about when it speaks of sin and righteousness. Anyway, I don't want to spend too long on uncleanness right now, as we'll have ample opportunities in upcoming weeks to dig into this topic even more. 
Continuing on through verse 17, we read of the rest of the instructions for the sin offering for a priest being carried out with this first sacrifice. In verse 18, we then read of the first Ola sacrifice being offered on the newly sanctified and cleansed altar. And throughout verse 21, we read of the instructions for this Ola being carried out exactly. Then the second offering is brought, the ram for ordination. And with this ram, there's something a bit more and different that goes on. The blood from this ram was taken and applied to the altar, but it's also applied to the men, the priests who were being ordained. Now, this is not the first time that the blood of a sacrifice is sprinkled on people. We read of this another place in scripture, Exodus 24, verse 5 through 8. And he sent young men of the children of Israel, and they offered ascending offerings and sacrificed sacrifices of peace offerings to Hashem of bulls. And Moshe took half of the blood and put it in basins and half of the blood, and he sprinkled it on the altar. And he took the book of the covenant and he read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, all that Hashem has spoken, we shall do and obey. And Moshe took the blood and he sprinkled it on the people and said, see the blood of the covenant, which Hashem has made with you concerning all these words. Now, if we track what's then done with the goat after it's applied to the people, I believe that we catch a glimpse of the purpose of this ram, and we can even categorize it into one of the categories of sacrifice that we've already covered. In verse 24, the blood is sprinkled on the altar. In verse 25, the suet, kidneys, and right thigh, they're all waved, and then they're all burned on the altar. In verse 29, the breast becomes Moses' portion. And in verse 30, the rest of the flesh of the animal is cooked as meat for the priests. And when they're finished, if we turn back to Exodus 29, we'll recognize that before the next sunrise, the meat was to be burned with fire. Now, does this remind you of any of the sacrifices that we've covered already? If you said peace offering, you would be correct. But there are a couple of unique issues with this sacrifice that don't let it fit cleanly into the category of peace offering. And with the peace offering, only the fat was to be burned on the altar. The right thigh belonged to the priest that offered the sacrifice. But in this case, the right thigh is burned on the altar alongside the suet and kidney. In this case, there is no priest as such that's offering this offering. And so there's really nowhere else for it to go. And so it goes to Hashem as smoke on the fire. Second, with a peace offering, the breast became food for the priests in general. Any priest that was clean could eat of the breast of the peace offering, even if he didn't offer the sacrifice. But in this case, the breast goes to Moses as his portion. And as we see, Moses served as the priest over these proceedings. And so the breast becomes uniquely his. Third, for the remainder of the animal, when it came to a shlemim or peace offering, the worshiper who brought the sacrifice was to eat of the animal, along with everyone else who was invited to participate that was in a state of cleanliness. In this case, it was the priests that were being ordained who were to eat of this animal. Finally, the blood of the peace offering was to be simply sprinkled on the altar before being poured out at the base of the altar. With this offering, there are several other things that are done with the blood of the animal. First is the one that we already talked about. The blood is applied to the right ear, right thumb, and right big toe of each of the priests undergoing ordination. Now, I've heard a lot of attempts to discern the purpose for this, but I believe the simplest to be the most probable. 
The fact is that ancient cultures were steeped in symbolism, and so this action was a symbol for the priests to align what they allowed to enter their mind, their actions that they carry out, and that the way that they walk through life, they were all to be aligned for the purpose of peace with Hashem. In Philippians 4, 6-9, we read, Do not worry at all, but in every manner, by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, let your requests be known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, shall guard your hearts and minds through Messiah Yeshua. For the rest, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is righteous, whatever is clean, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good report, if there is any uprightness and if there is any praise, think on these. And what you have learned and received and heard and saw in me, practice these, and the God of peace shall be with you. This passage in Philippians, I believe, is alluding to this act of putting the blood of this peace sacrifice on the ears, thumbs, and toes of a person. It opens speaking of the peace of God guarding us, and it closes with calling Hashem the God of peace. And in the middle, it speaks of aligning thoughts and actions through practice with God and Paul, so that we might live in peace with him. And I think that this is the most reliable way to understand this practice of putting blood on the ear, thumb, and toe. And this is not the last time that we're going to see this. So, we're going to approach this question once again in just a few weeks when we go through the cleansing ceremony for a person that's recovered from leprosy. Because in that instance as well, the same thing happens. And there was another thing that was done with the blood from this sacrifice, though. The blood was mixed with the anointing oil, and it was sprinkled on Aaron's sons and on their garments. Now, if we pay attention to the anointing that goes on in this passage, we're going to see two types of anointing occurring. The high priest in verse 12 has a significant portion of oil poured over his head, if Psalm 133 is to be believed as accurately descriptive of the anointing process. Psalm 133 verse 2 says, Like the precious oil on the head, running down on the beard, the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. But then for the regular priests, when they're anointed in verse 30, they have their oil mixed with the blood from the ordination sacrifice. And then rather than having the oil poured over their heads in copious amounts as happened with the high priest, the normal priests only have this mixture sprinkled on them, similar to what happened with the people back in Exodus 24. Now one thing that we're going to find when we go through the chapters on holiness later in Leviticus and in several other upcoming places we're going to see that there is truly a hierarchy of holiness that is present in the community of Israel. There is the one who has been granted a level of holiness above and beyond everyone else, and this one is allowed to come into the Holy of Holies once a year, as an example. Then come the remainder of the priests, who have a slightly lower level of holiness imparted to them, as well as expected from them. They can come into the holy place, but not into the Holy of Holies. And then the remainder of the people of Israel who also have holiness, but it's a lower level of holiness. They are allowed to come into the courtyard of the tabernacle, but not inside. In a few weeks, we're going to see this clearly, but for now, all we get is this little comparison of the differences in the process of anointing the priests and the high priests. And we can add to this the differences in the clothing between the high priests and the regular priests. But as I said, we'll get into this more at a later date. So this process, the process of the ordination sacrifice is a process that was then to continue for seven days. Now, this allusion to seven days is one that is a central theme throughout scripture, whether it's the seven days of creation, 
the seven days of cleansing from birth of a male child, coming into contact with a human corpse, or cleansing from leprosy or tzaraot, the seven days of dedication for the temple, even the seven days of matzah and sukkot. Throughout scripture we read of various seven-day processes that tend to conform to one of three categories. Seven days of celebration, seven days of purification or sanctification, and seven days of dedication. And it's from these ideas, combined with several other passages and ideals that we referred to back in Genesis 1, that we can discern the purpose of the record for seven days of creation. Each of these things is connected to seven days. They're things of the temple and the tabernacle. Seven days is temple language throughout scripture. And with this view, we can legitimately, in my opinion, see Genesis 1 as descriptive of the creation of a temple for God to inhabit. Regardless, we finish the chapter with, and Moses did all that Hashem commanded him. And that's it. Nearly every other piece of this chapter is something that we have read before, or something that we don't have enough data to completely flesh out at this time. So what can we learn from this repetition? Well, back in Exodus, we read repeats of most of the chapters from 25 to 28, once again in the, at the end of the book. But beginning in chapter 29, the repeats ended. Well, now we get the repeat of chapter 29. And as we've said before, when the Bible repeats itself, which it does often, look to the differences to discover the reason for the repeat. So what do these differences teach us when we compare it to Exodus 29, or Exodus 28, or Exodus 40 for that matter? In this case, I think it has to do with what's coming next. Because if we turn to the first words of the next chapter, what do we read about? The eighth day. The day that follows the seven days. And if we pull that thread, there's something significant regarding the eighth day that you're going to have to wait until next week for my take on. But as we see, this chapter truly serves as connective tissue between all that we have read before and the rest of the narrative and the instructions that we're about to get into. And as I opened with, this chapter gathers together what has gone before, but in this case, it's not limited to only what has come before in the book of Leviticus. Rather, it incorporates things from as far back as Exodus 24 and 25 up through what we've just read in Leviticus. And moving forward, this passage touches on the upcoming things that that will be explored a bit more in the next two chapters. The topics of uncleanness and the purification that was necessary for the altar, holiness and the anointing that was accomplished for the altar, labor, and the priests, and community, and that the entire community was gathered together to witness this process. And from this, we can see that Scripture truly is a tapestry, It's one in which every single aspect is of vital importance. But as we have seen previously and even today, some threads are there only to act as shading. They're meant to help us to shift our view to other places and ideas, to compare and to contrast the proverbial colors of this work. Yes, this chapter is important, it's valid, but perhaps it's not in the usual ways. This chapter, in many ways, it seems to be here as a pointer to prompt us to compile in our minds all that's been said previously in preparation for what's about to come. For scripture is not simply a set of lines upon lines, but it is living and breathing. It is purposeful in its execution, and it's all pointing towards the worship of Hashem. 
So keep seeking Hashem in all that you do. And Darashchai, seek life. Shalom. Thank you for tuning in to Darashchai. If this content has blessed you and you would like more, please consider subscribing, liking, commenting, and sharing with others. To find out more about what we do and to support this ministry, head over to SeekLifeSC.com. That's SeekLifeSC.com. We'll see you again next time as we Darashchai, as we seek life. Shalom.